So we are um, continuing on now in Matthew chapter 5. We have come to the end, since actually since February. I think it was like February 7th was the service that I flew up from Washington, D.C., and we started our series on the Beatitudes. That's not because we've been going super slow. It's just because we haven't met every week since February. So if you're new, don't think that we've been in it for that long entirely consecutively. But we started in February this look at the Beatitudes, and we got to the, to the last Beatitude two weeks ago um, about persecution for righteousness' sake. And then Jesus now turns from the Beatitudes and the explanation of, of the Beatitudes to this subject of the vocation or the call of, of the Christian community in the world. And um, there's these common issues as human beings that we face, these questions of, of identity, of who am I or what am I to be, and then these questions of really ultimately of, uh, of calling or vocation, what am I to do? These questions probably define a lot of our thinking. They determine a lot of our thinking and, and fill up a lot of our, our time and energy as we're discerning these things. And for those of us who follow Jesus, the, there, there isn't a better place to come in the Bible than to hear at the beginning of Matthew 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus basically lays out in the Beatitudes, as we've been talking about them, the character or the heart of a follower of Jesus, of a member of his kingdom community. He's giving us a picture and detailing for us what this person looks like, not on the outside so much, but from the inside out, on the inside, which the, the heart is where the life flows from, biblically speaking. And so he's, he's unveiling the heart. And then he's, so that's the question of who, who am I to be or, or what am I to be? And then this question of what am I to do or what is my vocation in life? He turns to this next and says that for those of you who are following me and embodying these kinds of Beatitudes in your life. This is your vocation in the world. This is who the people of God are called to be, who my disciples are called to be um, in the world. And that's the, that's the, the question that, that Jesus is getting at here in Matthew 5 with, with this passage on salt and light. And he makes two declarations. And what I want to do, we're actually going to spend two weeks in these uh, four verses. So this week we're going to look a little bit more at the the, the, the positive declarations that Jesus makes about the, the people of God, about his disciples, his community. And, um, and then next time we're going to get into a little bit more about the ramifications of this for us today and, and what this means in terms of missional holiness. We'll get there a little bit at the end today, but that's the plan for the next couple of, uh, of messages. So the first thing that Jesus says, he says, you are the salt of the earth. There, there are two things he describes the, the, the community of his followers. You're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. Now, probably most of you here knew that already. We throw this around all the time, the salt of the earth, light of the world. It's kind of entered into pop culture in a lot of different ways and, and certainly kind of contemporary Christian thinking. It's, it's easy. Salt, you're salt and light. You're salt and light. And we get that ingrained in our minds. But I want to take a moment just to slow down a little bit and say, what does that actually mean? What is Jesus drawing out by talking about salt of the earth and light of the world? What does it say about the earth? When he says, you are the salt of the earth, what does it say about the world in which we live? It says, ultimately, if we think for a moment just about what salt was used for commonly in the ancient world and still in many places in the world today, you would put it on meat, for example, which, was, which had bacteria and fungi on its surface that left at room temperature, which they didn't have refrigeration back then, would just um, do this thing uh, called putrefaction or rotting, and it would just rot away. And people would rub salt on the outside of the meat to neutralize the, the, the work of the bacteria or the fungus on the meat and preserve it. So salt has this preserving function. So when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, it implies something about the earth, the world in which we live, that it's actually decaying. It's rotting, if you will, around us. 
We get this kind of thing in, in Romans 1, that um, beginning of Paul's great epistle. He says, although they knew God, he's speaking just generally about the world, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Talking about the, the world and its fallenness, it's having walked away from God. And so this statement about being the salt of the earth is, is actually highlighting something about the earth, the world in which we live, that it's decaying. It's rotting. It's a place where death is reigning and where there's kind of a disintegration of most of what we were created for in our design. And so that says something about the function of the followers of Jesus. And there are a couple of negative functions, if you will, a couple of things that we pull out of this idea of being the salt of the earth. The first is that we are this preserving agent in the world as the church, that whereas the rest of the world is is rotting and decaying in sin and in rebellion from God and disintegration, that the church, the place of Jesus' followers, is, is in contrast to that. It's a place of renewal. It's a place of new life, where life conquers death, where joy conquers despair, where hope, um, hope is reigning and ruling in the people, where peace is found. And these are the things that define the Christian community. And this, this is a kind of preserving, uh, has a preserving effect in the world that we live. If all of the world is going one direction, the followers of Jesus stand in contradiction to that in another direction, a place of renewal and a place of life. One uh, way of illustrating this, Mandy and I used to live in a a small town called Buena Vista, Colorado. And uh, I think I've told you about this mission that we got involved with there before that was connected to our our little church in the town. Uh, It was called the Arkansas Valley Christian Mission. And in this mission, there was an older couple in their 60s at the time who basically had given up their lives to serving the working poor in our little town of about 2,000 people with one stoplight on Main Street, you know, this little kind of small town, and it wasn't a ski town, it was just a humble little town in the middle of Colorado, and they were giving their lives to working with the, with the working poor in this community. Now, left to their own, that, that portion of the community in Buena Vista would just simply have kind of continued to, to rot away, if you will, would have just continued to be in rejection from the world, kind of on the down and out, the, the refuse the, the, the people who didn't make it in the, the world, the culture that we live in. But in light of the fact that there was this, this church that was present and people who, who loved Jesus, who were out there doing the work of renewal and reconciliation and, and bearing witness to their true Lord, there was a kind of preserving effect that that had upon just a small portion of the community in this small town in Colorado. That's one way in which being the salt of the earth has this preserving impact or preserving effect in the world today. And another way, perhaps, and I'm not sure that this is 100% there exegetically in the, in the text, but I think, we could, I think it's fair to say that another negative effect, if you will, or function of the church, is to prevent the kind of blandness and the emptiness that, that exists in the world today that's, that's severed from the God who made it. So we have this kind of flavoring or enhancing or, or uh, like a zestful quality to the church that it brings into the world today, into life. And this is how we're, as the, as the body of Christ, are holding up true life and true humanity in a world that is running for it and looking for it in all the wrong places um, and, and seeking after fulfillment and everything that doesn't give it. And we have the church, the people of God, who are embracing Jesus and having true peace and true freedom, and true joy, and lasting joy, and these things that, that everybody's kind of searching for. And, and this witness in the world has this kind of flavoring effect on the world around us. 
um, where you kind of get a, a sense when you look at people's faces um, in the mad rush of Boston or in any other city that people just aren't that happy. There's not a whole lot of joy going around. I, I don't know if you ever do it. Sometimes I do. When I'm driving down the road, I'll just kind of look at people's faces in the cars you know, as they're driving by. And except for the few who are singing at the top of their lungs, you know, most of them are typically just kind of have this like straight look on their face. And the, the Christian community is, is, is an alternate witness in the world of, of something life-giving, something joyful, something tasty, something flavorful. So in these two ways, we can talk about the church, the people of God being the salt of the earth. Let me give you um, an example of this from the second century, from an Athenian philosopher named Aristides, who, in a writing in the second century, catalogs a bunch of the ways that Christians were living in his world. And he says these ways distinguish their way of life from the rest of the population, from the pagan population that was so common. And he said they modeled fidelity, truthfulness, contentment, respect for parents, love for neighbors, purity, patience in the face of persecution, and kindness to strangers. And then he goes on to note their special kindness to slaves in particular, um, over and against the way that pagans would treat their slaves, and also their incredible kindness to the poor. And it's very common knowledge that the early church was known for its commitment to laboring among and caring for the poor. And then he says this, and I think this is interesting in a, in a, as we look at this issue of salt. He says, and see, because of them, good flows on in the world. Because of them, good flows on in the world. That's the preserving and the flavoring effect of the Christian community that follows Jesus. So that's the first thing. You're the salt of the earth. And the second thing that Jesus declares of, the, of his followers is you're the light of the world. And obviously this one's probably even in more well-known. It says, you are the light of the world in verse 14. And I have to note, first of all, that Jesus in, in John 8, 12 says this about himself. He says, I am the light of the world. So we could never understand you are the light of the world to mean something inherently dignified about us as people outside of Jesus. But the Christian community, his body on earth, which is not surprising that what he describes himself as in John 8, he here says to the people, that are his followers, you are the same because, because we are his body on earth. So you are the light of the world. And what he says um, about us in that case is, not, is, is because of our connection to Jesus. It's because we've been united with him by faith. We've been buried with him. We've been raised with him. And it's only in our unification with Jesus that this statement about being the light of the world bears any truth in our lives as a description of who we are as, as God's people. It doesn't exist outside of our union with Christ. So the earth, it says something as well about the earth, much like the saltiness, the salt of the earth says something about the earth, so does the light of the world. And what is it, obviously, what does it say about the earth? It says that the earth is in darkness. And this is a theme that's obviously repeated throughout the scriptures um, again and again, that it's in darkness despite the fact, it's interesting what the great movement um, that began, I think, uh, 17th century, early 17th century, the Enlightenment. Note the word light, enlightenment, that we're, we're enlightening ourselves. And that whole, that whole movement was about, about humankind's mastery over nature and their freedom from the dogmas of the church and the, the, the chains and the shackles of tradition, their freedom to be, a new, to, to be kind of a new thing and their own saviors. And that's what we call the Enlightenment or this myth of progress, which I would say... You know, if, we, if this was 30 years ago or 50 years ago, that myth might still have existed, or maybe even 80 or 90 years ago. I'd, th I'd say that today most people don't believe in that myth of progress anymore, that you know, we're just kind of progressing from one degree of, of, of glory to the next as human beings on our own, in our own strength, by our own minds, by our own efforts. 
So this statement about being the light of the world implies that the world is actually in darkness, despite what it says about itself, that the world is in darkness. And most people in the world would probably look around and say, you know, I don't really see that. I see good things going on here and there. And I just say that's part of being in the darkness, is you don't know you're in the dark. You don't know you're in the dark when you're in the darkness. But the, 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 the biblical witness says to us that actually there is darkness and says that Jesus, in him was the light, uh, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light has shined in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So there's that picture of light breaking into darkness, into a dark world. And um, a few functions of being the light of the world that come out of this idea. Uh, one is that as the light of the world, we expose the darkness. We expose the darkness. Let me say, have any of you ever, ever had that experience where you were outside at dusk and it just kept getting darker and darker and you didn't know how dark it was until somebody like turned their car headlights on or something, if you're sitting in a park, or somebody turned the flashlight on. You probably have all had that experience. That's in a sense the function, this, this function of the Christian community is that we're like the light that comes on in a dark world. That when we live and walk in a way of humility and of self-giving sacrificial love, of kindness, of fidelity, of faithfulness, when we walk in these ways, it shows up this kind of pride and self-serving and rudeness and violence that defines so much of the world around us. And it shows it up in a way that accentuates it. You can't really know how dark something is until you see the contrast with something else. And so in Jesus himself and then in his body, we provide that contrast in the world as we walk in his ways and show ourselves to be the light of the world, exposing the darkness. The other thing that the light of the world does is it explains the darkness as well. It says that there's, it, it gives this understanding that is perhaps missing in the world today of where that darkness is rooted and how it, how it comes into the world. And, 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 um, and what its impact and its, the extent of its influence on the world is. In that, obviously, those who come into Christ come to learn about this whole thing of sin and this, this way of rebellion um, from God and, and the running away that, that actually uh, runs through everything in our world today. And so it, the light gives some kind of explanation for the darkness that we see around us. But perhaps most importantly, uh, uh, so exposing and explaining the darkness, those are more negative functions, Positively, the light of the world shows to the world around us the true way of life. And light is always a pointer. Think about the, the psalm that says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. The light comes into the darkness and doesn't just expose the darkness, maybe, maybe bring about persecution as we talked about two weeks ago in that exposure, but it actually shows a way forward. It shows something positively to a new place. And the light that we are in the world shows the way to true life. It shows the way to the, to the Son, the way to Jesus, the way to true humanity as it was always meant to be. Notice in verse 16 that um, as he expounds upon this, and we might look at this more in a couple of weeks, he says, they may see your good works and not give glory to you for being so great or being so different, than the world around you, but give glory to, to, to my Father who is in heaven, to your Father who is in heaven. So as the light is shining, it brings this, this focus and attention and spotlight, not upon us as agents of the light, as people of the light, but upon the source of the light. If we were to give glory to ourselves, it's, it's like giving glory to the stream and not to the source. But it's to the source that people's eyes are directed as they encounter the Christian community that's living in this certain kind of way. Graham Tomlin uh, 
is a uh, theologian of sorts. He, he was one of my teachers over in England, and he wrote a book called The Provocative Church, which is a, an excellent look at the function of the church as a provocative community, which um, in many ways is what these passages are getting on about. And he says this about the church in his book. He says, the church is meant to recall to the world her proper destiny, to remind her of her true king, to show her a picture of human life as it was originally intended to be. To show her a picture of human life as it was originally intended to be. This is the function of the people of God in the world. To show the world around us a picture of human life as it was intended to be. Restoration, renewal, light, not darkness. Love, humility, these kinds of attributes being shown to the world as the way that all creatures were meant to live, all human beings were meant to live. But how is it that we walk in this way of being the salt of the earth and the light of the world? I want to say that um, there's a real danger with a text that's this commonly known in our world today and in the church today. Everybody knows you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. There's a danger of divorcing it from its context, of ripping it out of that context in which Jesus preaches it here and just kind of letting it float off on its own so that we can then define what salt of the earth and light of the world really mean, what the flavorful or light-giving life of the believers or followers of Jesus is supposed to be. But it's actually embedded, I think, wonderfully right here in the text, and it follows directly upon the Beatitudes that we've been looking at for, for many months now. The way in which we, we truly become the salt of the earth and the light of the world in union with Christ is by living out the Beatitudes. It's by being poor in spirit, by being those who mourn over sin, by being those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, by being those who are meek and not pushy, by being those who, who are peacemakers or pure in heart, those who are willing to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The people who walk in this way are the people who become and who truly are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And it's only those people, it's only the, to the extent that we actually embody the Beatitudes as the people of God, as the followers of Jesus, that we truly will be salt of the earth in light of the world. It's not through the, and this is what I think one of the places the church has gotten confused, it's not through proclaiming dogmas or truths, with, often with an air of superiority. You know how that feels sometimes when somebody just wants to give you their opinion and say, you know, I've got it figured out. And I think sometimes that's the way we've seen our function in the world is to be bearers of the truth. And there's obviously a lot of truth in that. But in the way that we bear the truth, we do it with such a, a sense of superiority that it undermines the whole idea of being poor in spirit in the world. And so we snuff out that light that we're called to be in doing it in this way. And, and being the, the, the salt of the earth and the light of the world, embodying the Beatitudes is fundamentally countercultural. We've talked about this uh, at several points, the fact that each one of those Beatitudes is running in the opposite direction of the natural tendency of the way in which human life is lived today, the way in which our culture and our world pushes us, is not toward being poor in spirit. It's not toward mourning. It's toward kind of having a happy face all the time. It's not toward hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's toward hungering and thirsting for your own fulfillment in whatever way you think you can find it. And so the, the, the way in which the church embodies these beatitudes is always going to be countercultural. And I just want to pose that question to you is the church truly countercultural? Do we truly walk in a way that's different from the normal routine and life and direction of the world around us? 
I think that's a question that we really have to wrestle with in light of this passage and ask ourselves, what are we incarnating? Are we incarnating the dogmas and the, and the beliefs of our culture in through our lives, in our lives? Or are we incarnating the Beatitudes and the life of Jesus ultimately in us and through us? Which one is it? Which one, if somebody was just to kind of take a look at our life and, and, and observe us for a week maybe and look at the way we thought and the way we made decisions and the way that we lived our lives, what would they say? Would there be a noticeable change or difference about the life of the person who claims to follow Jesus. In many ways, I would have to say that the church oftentimes proclaims a kind of I've got it all together mentality. You know, I can think of that, that, that branch of the church that's just always celebrating one degree of victory to the next and, and publishing good material and helpful hints for life, but you go, where's the cross? Where, where's the way of the cross? Where's the, where's the, the, the man of sorrows in that picture? And yeah, it sells really well and it presents really well and it's got good programs and everything else, but where's the true life in it? Where's that countercultural beatitude kind of life in the church today? And that's the kind of question that we need to be asking as the people who follow Jesus. And as a way of transitioning into to two weeks from now, let me just say that there is an absolute and fundamental necessity in the church today for a transformed life. The number one question that the world is asking us as the church is not, is it true? It's, does it work? I'm not, I'm not sure that's the right question, but I would say it's, it's the number one question that we're being posed as the church. Not so much, is it true? Not so much, can you give me this coherent system of thinking and thought and the way life is supposed to work and the way I fit into it, and, and it really makes sense. But more, do you have joy? Do you have peace? Do you know true freedom in your life? Is your life actually changing from bondage to sin and to the futility of human life into something that's holy and pure and righteous? Is it, is it providing motivation and impetus to serving God and to serving others? That's the question that's being put before the church. In order for us to truly walk into the vocation as salt of the earth and light of the world, there must be a transformation of life, a complete transformation of life. Tomlin says again, he says this, the reason churches are struggling today is because many of us in the West today live lives that are virtually indistinguishable from those of our non-Christian friends, neighbors, and work colleagues. As one young man once told me, the reason I cannot become a Christian is because I see no difference between the way Christians behave and the way non-Christians behave. The early church was known for its transformational effect upon a human life. It was known for this. Before he became a Christian, I mentioned Justin Martyr two weeks ago, the second century apologist of the Christian faith. Before he became a Christian, the, the way in which Christians lived as a great minority in the Roman Empire had a tremendous impact upon him and his desire to come to be a follower of Jesus. He said, those who once rejoiced in fornication now delight in continence alone. Those who made, it, made use of magic arts have dedicated themselves to the good and unbegotten God. We who once took most pleasure in the means of increasing our wealth and property, sounds like the U.S., now bring what we have into a common fund and share with everyone in need. There was a real transformation that took place when people came into contact with the living Jesus. 
And it wasn't just transformation of a nobility to spit something out that sounded nice, but it was a transformation that took place in the trenches of their lives, in the day in and the day out, the Monday mornings, the Friday nights, every aspect of life was being transformed. And for us to walk into the world as salt of the earth and light of the world, it requires an entire transformation of who we are as people. I want to close by reading something out of this. This is E. Stanley Jones, Christ at the Round Table. He was a missionary, uh, Methodist missionary in India and started his work in the 1920s. He went around India and had these big meetings where he would draw people from the community and talk about Jesus. And then the next day he would often have what he's called, what's called a round table where he would gather many of the elite religious people of that community to sit around a table and they would ask one question. What does religion mean to you, comma, in experience? It wasn't a time to come and debate philosophies. It wasn't a time to come and, 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 and um, you know, exert your religion's superiority over the next. He was simply asking that very human question. What does it mean to you in experience? And he describes in this um, bit that I'm, I'll, I'll read to you in a moment, this, he describes this, this round table where there's this man who's a skeptic. In fact, he's been trained in Western universities and he's brought a paper with him that, that contradicts Christianity. He's kind of bought into the rationalist thought of the day, the, the height of mod, the, the, the higher criticism movement of the early 20th century. And he's, 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 kind of, he's come with this agenda and they said, no, that's not the right agenda here. You have to listen here. And then E. Stanley Jones says this. He says, in the midst of this group sat an unassuming retiring youth with bare feet dressed in simple homespun. He was an MA student, a convert from the Aborigines. There were millenniums of spiritual and social culture between the rest of his group and this youth. But as he began to speak, every eye was soon fastened on him, for he was evidently speaking out of reality as he told of what Christ meant to him. It was simple, direct, and real. Christ's touch was upon his life, and lo, he had leaped beyond the group around him and had gained life's secret and meaning. As men sat listening, they instinctively felt that he had found the way of life and that they had missed it. At the close, my combative friend, moved to his depths by the impact of the whole upon him, came to me and limply said, he speaks well, doesn't he? Yes, he had spoken well, for he had caught the accent of the lips of him who spake as never man spake. An aborigine in a few swift years becomes the teacher to the Brahmins and the highly cultured. The next day as he sat with me and told me of his plan to turn his back upon the prizes that university education was offering him in order to go back and live as a holy man among his people in the hills to share with them what Christ was meaning to him, I knew that the passion of the cross had caught fire in his heart. That's the description of the man or woman that will be transformed through the power of God. We don't walk into the beat. We don't. We don't embody the beatitudes, a transformed life, by going out and trying to live it in our own strength. We embody the beatitudes by encountering the glorious, resurrected Jesus, who spoke as never a man has spoke before. And in that encounter, find ourselves, as he says here, having the passion of the cross catch fire in our heart and that out of that heart that is changed then we walk in this way truly as the salt of the earth and the light of the world amen